Hello, and welcome to this Solace Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solacechurch.com. And now we turn our attention to the prophet Zephaniah. All right, so Zephaniah is where we are, as I mentioned. We are uh, continuing a, a 12-week series uh, through the last 12 books of the Bible, of the, sorry, of the Old Testament, which are, we've been saying, some of the least studied books in all of the Bible. Last 12 books of the Old Testament, some of the least studied books in all the Bible. Our series is entitled Majoring in the Minors. That's what we're doing. We're looking at the minor prophets. Uh, they, they are um, prophets and uh, anointed and called men of God in Israel's history that God used to speak his word to his people. There's hundreds of those in Israel's history, but um, out of those hundreds or so, there's about 17 that the Spirit inspires to record their ministry and their content and their journey. From that, we get the, the, the 17 prophets in the Bible, their books. And out of those 17, five of them are long in length. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Lamentations, Daniel. Those are the longer ones. And then the last 12 of the prophets are a bit Shorter, un poco, and so un poquito or something, all right? So we have Spanish translation at this service. Um, they're a little bit smaller, and uh, that, that's the reason why they're called minor prophets. They're not minor in their significance. They're just minor in their length. They each pack a major message, and so what we're doing each week is uh, trying to study these whole books in whole Sundays. I'm on, I think this is week nine, and I'm still trying to figure out how to do this, so thank you for your patience and bearing with me. Um, but we're going to try to look at the, the overview, get an understanding of what's going on here in the book of Zephaniah today, which is our ninth of the minor prophets. Um, and then we're going to begin to explore what does God have to say to you and I in the 21st century at this moment? How is this inspired word profitable for how we follow Jesus in our current moment? And so that's what we're going to get after today in Zephaniah. I want to just give a precursor. The book of Zephaniah... I mean, the minor prophets are just rich, and they're all different. They're all unique. We're, we're going to see in Zephaniah, just the, the structural like, outline of it is really tough to craft a Bible study around. It's got its general structure that most of the prophets do. Have you noticed this by now? Like Almost every minor prophet's something like this. Israel and every other human is really messed up and is facing God's judgment, God is a God of mercy, repent, be saved. Like that's, that's like generally the message every Sunday morning we've been looking at in some form or fashion. And Zephaniah has that same flow, but the way that it's put together, it doesn't, it doesn't have like this streamlined chronology. It's a little bit more like Zephaniah took like, I imagine like on his sermon desk, he had all these sticky notes of messages, and he's just like, let's put that in a book. And it kind of feels like that. It just feels like a lot of different messages. And so um, I'm going to have a lot of the verses up on the screen, uh, but feel free to be flipping uh, through it with us. I just have to give a shout out to Mike, by the way, who prepared all those verses. Can we give it up for Mike? Mike's the man. So Mike's preaching half of the sermon is what I'm trying to say from the computer. All right. Hey, let's pray together and invite God to speak to us. Father, um, we're, we're so thankful that we, that we get to be here, that we, that we have this opportunity to have your word open before us. And Man, if we only knew your desire, your plan, your intention for what you want to do in our lives, God, we, we, we want to know. We want to believe that you're a God who's longing to speak to us because you love us because you have even better for us than we've already experienced. Um, we believe that you're a God that wants to work in our lives. We just acknowledge together, God, every last one of us, we're here. And what we all have in common is that we need you. We need your work. We need your touch. We are in need of your spirit. To bring us where we can't bring ourselves. To produce in us, God, what we can't conjure up. God, to change us. Maybe change our hearts, Lord. Whatever the case, Lord Jesus, you know. And together we just give you the space now to move, to have your way. 
Holy Spirit, please get me out of the way so that you can be heard loud and clear. We ask you to speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Zephaniah. Here we are. What is going on in the minor prophet book of Zephaniah? Well, uh, to answer that, as we've started every week, we begin with our prophet profile. Prophet profile. This is a general overview of what the book of Zephaniah has going for, what, what it has going on. Uh, the first piece of information that's worth looking at is just the title of the book, who wrote the book. Uh, this guy, Zephaniah, he's mentioned to us, if you look at your Bibles there in verse 1, it says, the word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah. That's what it tells us about him. You'll see up there in quotes that he's commonly referred to as the royal prophet. Now, there's no other mention of Zephaniah outside of this book, but here's what he lets us know about him. He tells us that he is the son of Cushi, all right, the son of Gadaliah, it's his granddad, the son of Amariah, his great-granddad, the son of Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, who's his great-granddad. Now, typically a prophet, if they're going to give us any information, they'll usually tell us, like, here's who my dad is. But odds are most of us are not like, oh, Cushy, yeah, Cushy. Like, we don't know who that is. So, so there's, there's a reason here that, that Zephaniah is the first prophet to give us um, four generations of his heritage. And he stops for a reason at his great-great-grandfather, who he names there this man, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the greatest kings in Israel's history. Look at what it says about him in 2 Kings 8.5. He trusted in the Lord God of Israel, so that after him none was like him among all the kings of Judah, nor who were before him. So this guy is an unprecedented king, and he just so happens to be the great-great-grandfather of Zephaniah. Anybody ever done the ancestry thing? Okay, have you done that yet? That's really hip, really cool to know who you come from, all right? Uh, who's in your lineage? Um, it's, it's kind of fun to kind of look at it and be like, oh, my great-great-grandfather was a great guy, and he was famous in his town or something. Uh, so Zephaniah has this beat, okay? He's got a famous, uh, a very famous uh, royal great-great-grandfather, and so he comes down that line. He's the royal prophet, all right? I have no great insights into that. I don't know how that applies to your life or my life, but it's true. It's, it's just who he is, okay? Next point is about where he is. It tells us there he's in the southern kingdom of Judah. He tells us that it was in the days of, chapter 1, verse 1, Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. So that's where he is. At this time, the northern kingdom of Israel has been completely um, destroyed and overtaken by the Assyrians. And you have at this moment, Hezekiah is a prophet to the land of Judah, that southern kingdom. Now, the time frame is really important for us to know what's going on in this moment in history at this time. Um, the southern kingdom of Judah at this time, you have, again, you have King Josiah. Now, a big question uh, usually should be, especially in light of this, is that what time in King Josiah's reign? If you remember King Josiah from 2 Chronicles, he's a very significant figure in Israel's history. Uh, like Hezekiah, he was a great king. He was responsible for reforming the nation around the word of God, to put it simple. They rediscovered the, the law of God. Go figure. God's people rediscover the Bible. They're like, oh, God wrote a book. Maybe we should read it. And they do. They bring it to center stage. And what you have happen in Israel is what you could call an almost revival. It's like the saddest thing to, to actually think about. You have an almost revival. You have a bunch of people who gather to recommit themselves to the Lord without truly surrendering their hearts to the Lord. It's an almost revival. There's, there's reform, but there's not revival. But still, King Josiah was a great leader who brought God's word back where it belongs, center stage for God's people to be centered around what God has to say to them and who he calls them to be. Now, a good question is, okay, so Zephaniah is a prophet at that time. So when is he a prophet? Well, when you read Zephaniah, you get this inclination that he's a prophet before any of that happens. He's a prophet at a time in Israel's history where things are as bad as they could get. You would imagine that if King Josiah had instituted the law back into Israel's history and then Zephaniah writes his book, he would probably mention it, but he doesn't. So this is prior to, very likely prior to Josiah's, you know, early in Josiah's reign. Josiah became king when he was eight years old. 
which is crazy to think about. I have a seven-year-old who sometimes thinks he's a little king. Um, his name's Judah, too. He's the kingdom of Judah. Um, I can imagine him being king. It wasn't like that they were literally, like, making all the calls, you know, like playing with their stones or something. <laughs> then kill them, yeah. You know, I don't think that's what it was going on. I think they had, like, advisors. But he, he became a king very young, eight years old. And it's likely that Zephaniah is a prophet in the early stages of Josiah's reign before God's word brings reform to the people. And this is why that's important to point out. You get a lot of context for what's going on in Judah at this time. That gives us our time frame. Here is when Judah is write, or uh, Zephaniah is writing to the nation of Judah. 640 to 609 BC roughly. And here's the most important piece. It's a time prior to Judah's fall to Babylon. That eventually happens as God promises it would. This is a time prior to that happening when rampant idolatry and reckless rebellion has filled the land. Now, this is like, I've heard, isn't this kind of like, oh, I think I've heard this before, right? Like, I remember hearing, what other minor prophet is like this? Oh, yeah, every single one, right? Um, this is apparently the story of God's relationship with human beings and people. What is the story of the Bible, by the way? It, the story of the Bible is a covenant-breaking people and their covenant-keeping God. A God who enters covenant in, into a partnership with humanity in his grace and in his mercy. And despite man's consistency to rebel and be unfaithful, the picture is often used of a marriage covenant and adultery. Despite that unfaithfulness, you have this pursuant God who's faithful to keep his covenant with his people despite their rebellion and you have the same story here in judah you have another case of flat out rebellion as i said up there reckless rebellion and rampant idolatry uh, you see this mentioned here even in the first chapter if you're there if you look at verse four through six i'll put it up here on the screen here's what god says to the nation just speaking about their idolatry. So the reason why that's unfaithfulness to God is Israel existed to be a people who worshiped God and God alone. He was their God. It wasn't like he was, he was one of many. He's one and only. Just like your spouse is not one of many. They are one and only. And Israel was to exist as a bride to God. And they were unfaithful with all these different other gods without abandoning the Lord. Kind of the syncretistic religious life where, yeah, I worship God, you could say, on Sunday. But then I have all the other things that I give my whole life and attention to, these other gods that I pray to and seek after throughout the week. Uh, it tells us this. God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. Notice this. So God's like, I'm going to cut off every idol. So in the end, there's only going to be one God who's going to be worshipped. I'm going to cut off every trace of idolatry. And I'm going to cut off the names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests. So isn't that interesting? You have the pagan priests, and they exist to mediate between the people and these false foreign gods. And then you have Israel and their priests. They exist to point to the one true God. But the ministers, whether they're pagan or of God of the Bible, they look the same. That's really sad. So he's like, you're in the same category. Like, that's a scary place for, for, to be where God sees your ministry. And he's like, yeah, you look like a pagan minister. That's what God says to these leaders. And he says, I'm going to cut off all of your, your names. You're going to be forgotten. I'm also going to cut off those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops. They climb up on their roofs and they worship the stars. They pray to the stars. He goes on to say this. He says, those who have turned their back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. So we get this feel, this vision for the, the spiritual state of the nation of Israel. There is this rampant idolatry. Uh, if you look at chapter 3, verses 1 through, where it really goes down to verse 4, you get this really poetic description, uh, an even greater lens into what God is saying about Judah. Good morning, by the way. Welcome to church. I just have to give that caveat each week. It gets a little heavy. It gets a little better. It gets a little lighter. But starting with this, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, God says, woe to her. Here's what God has to say about Judah. Woe to her who is rebellious, notice this, and polluted. That's the way that God sees his people at this time. Certainly rebellious, but they were called to be a pure people who gather for pure worship around the Lord. And they have made profane what God calls sacred. They have polluted what's pure. That's how God sees them. 
It's, uh, in, in an earlier chapter, he says that they're wearing the garments of the foreign nations. And that, you know, that doesn't mean like check your tag and make sure it's made in America. That's not like the idea there. The idea there is that they are wearing the material. They are, they are, they are looking just like the world that they are called to influence. They've become polluted. So again, this is his view of them. He says this about them in verse 2, and this is, this is a constant way that Zephaniah writes. He uses like this repeti- uh, re- repetitive um, like sentence structure. So he'll like make a point and use the same opening words over and over again. It's kind of, it's kind of beautiful. You'll see it all throughout the book. But this is what he says in verse 2. He says about Judah, she has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to her God. It sounds like yelling at a teenager, right? She's not listening. She's not receiving anything I have to say to her, but this is what God says to his people. I mean, God forbid this is ever true of our lives. This is what God has to say about Judah. Four things that they're not doing. They're not obeying God's voice. God's speaking to them, but they're not doing anything with what he's saying. God is correcting them in his love. God's correction comes from a place of love, right? He sees us going in a place, a path of destruction, And he's like, no, turn and go this way to the path of life. And it says here that Judah would not receive that correction. They would hear it and know it and recite it all day long. Ultimately, it kind of gets like deeper in in truth the the more you go down the list. Thirdly, she's not trusting in the Lord. All these things that God has for his people to speak to them, to lead them, to be their hope, for them to trust in him and He says that they're not trusting in the Lord, they're trusting in other things. And lastly, they're not drawing near to God. They're not putting any effort into pursuing him and knowing him and walking with him. So again, just trying to paint this picture for us to understand the full idea of what's going on in Israel. Now, if you notice that that first word that we looked at in the the first verse of this chapter, chapter 3, that word polluted is important. Um, one One of the main reasons that Zephaniah... Um, points out as, as to why the nation is so far from God is not just that there is this collective rebellion, but w- what you're going to see Zephaniah emphasize is that that course of direction that the nation is on is because the leaders that God has put in place, have, have, they've, they've all fell, fallen asleep at the wheel, so to speak. So, so this is usually how it is, right? Not all the time, but most of the time, as the leaders go, so do the nation. As the leaders go, so do the community, so do the church. As the leaders go, so do the household. This is just true. It's how God ordered things. He raises up leaders. And, and what you see as this, as this continues to go on, look at verse 3. He says, her princes in her midst are roaring lions. And not like in a good way, like, yeah, I'm a roaring lion. That's cool. No, it's like a bad thing. It's not like a good thing. It's a, it's a sad thing. The idea is they're predatory rather than servants to the sheep. Her judges are evening wolves. Look at this depiction. Those that exist in in the nation to bring righteousness and execute justice, he says they're evening wolves that leave not a bone till morning. They're using their platform in an unjust way. The worst injustice is when those that are in a position to bring justice and they leverage that for evil things. And he says they're like wolves, Uh, It goes on to say this. Now he gets to the spiritual leaders. He says, her prophets who exist to speak God's word to his people are insolent, treacherous people. And here's that word polluted again. Her priests, those who exist to mediate between the people and God to bring them to the Lord, they've polluted the sanctuary and they have done violence to the law. So you, you have Zephaniah calling out the whole nation is guilty of this rebellion and idolatry, but he's taking time to specifically point out those who are called to be leading the nation in the right direction, but are failing to do so. And there's one more, there's one more group of people that Zephaniah mentions and holds responsible. And it's in chapter one, where Zephaniah, after calling out the the sort of like official leaders, he calls out these almost, you could say, local leaders, and specifically, who he calls out is the men. Zephaniah calls out the men in chapter one, and here's what he has to say. This is one of the, I think this could be the main contributor to why everything in Judah is, is bombing. And just look at what he has to say and uh, observe how convicting this is. He says this, it shall come to pass in that time, this is God's judgment that's coming, 
that I will search out Jerusalem with lamps. This is God speaking. And I'm going to punish the men who are settled in complacency. Who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. So it's like Zephaniah is helping us understand what's going on in Judah, right? He kind of starts with like the obvious things that you see from like a first glance. Like you walk in, you're like, oh, that's not God. That's a foreign idol. Idolatry. He starts with like the obvious. And, and then he gets into the fact that they've departed from God. And the truth of the matter is the reason why there's all this idolatry is nobody's seeking relationship with, with Yahweh, with the God of Israel. And then when you peel the layer back and you stick around a little bit longer, you see... Oh, look at the leaders that God has called to lead in, in the nation, the judges, the priests, the prophets. You explore that a little further, and you see they're failing to do their job, and they're the ones bringing pollution to the pure thing that God has done. And then Zephaniah goes all the way to the center of it. He says, here's who I'm really coming to judge, the men who have settled in complacency. That's what he says. At the root issue of what's wrong with Judah, and let me say, any nation, any culture, is complacent men. Every study will show you that where men are rising up, doing the hard work, being the provider, being the priest, being the protector, every environment where you have men fulfilling their God-given responsibility, you have people thriving. You have cultures flourishing. The, the incarceration rate goes down. The literacy rate goes up. You have all these different studies. I mean, you, it takes any of these studies. It's like unequivocal evidence that just shows the drastic effects, the vital severity of men being men and not boys. And we see this call all throughout Scripture specifically to the men. When I became a man, I put away childish things. My family needs me to be a man, to be the man that God has called me to be. And not some superficial, like, you know, macho way. Like, I mean, you can get a little of that. That's fine, okay? But I mean in a way that is, is honoring before God. Because there's a lot of red blood American male tendencies that are dishonoring to the Lord. But what we're talking about here is being those, now here's the big word, that aren't settled in complacency. That, that's, that's the problem here. Now, you're wondering, what does that mean? The word complacency. It means having an uncritical satisfaction with your life or yourself. An uncritical satisfaction. Um, you're not in a good place, but you're not really criticizing yourself. And you're not allowing anybody else to either. And you're satisfied. You, you like where you are. Of course you do. It's comfortable. And you don't want anybody to mess up that comfort. Like a call to repent and change, even though your whole family is going to be a million times blessed because of it, even though the world around us, our country, is going to be in a better place when men are rising up. At the end of the day, I've got to sacrifice my comfort. I've got to be critical. I've got to step into what God is calling me to do, but that's complacency. And what it says about these men, this is what's interesting, is that they were settled in their complacency. They were settled in a place of, I've just been so comfortable with where I'm at for so long that I can't even imagine changing. Which, like, what are you doing? Like, God's hope is the thing that should drive you to want to change. The fact that he wants to change you, that he wants to transform you, that he has more for your life than what you've been living. The factor is never whether or not you can change yourself. That's not what's at stake here. It's the hope that comes to us through God. And, and notice how that is at the root of complacency for the nation. Notice that it says that those that are settled in complacency, they're comfortable with where they're at, even though their family is suffering, they're comfortable. Notice that it's rooted in what they say in their heart. This is huge. Uh, so, so those in, who are complacent, they are, they are complacent because they have this view of God. It says this, they say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. I think that's really interesting. Zephaniah says that the root issue of complacent men is their view of God. The reason why he says men are complacent, a.k.a. passive, is because they have a passive view of God. They, they go, yeah, God's not going to do anything. That's literally what they say. He's not going to bring judgment. You know, he's not, he's not going to bring blessing. 
There's, there's no, this is the, the, the false theology, the faulty thoughts that come up. It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I do. It has no effect. Who cares? And it's a view of God that just says it doesn't matter. God doesn't change regardless of what I do or what I don't do. And it's that passive view of God that leads to a passive lifestyle. Now, switch that around. Here is the, the way to obliterate complacency in our lives. A right view of God. A view of God that says God is on the move. God is active. God has blessings to pour out on my life. God has a plan for my life. God, Ephesians 2.10 says, has created me in him for good works, which he's prepared beforehand for me to walk in. That's not a passive view of God. That's an exciting view of God. God wants to use me. I didn't just marry my wife to have kids to be like everyone else who does that. God has a plan for my role in my family. God has a vision of a legacy. God has generations in mind. God has, has my wife's own spiritual health in mind. God has a vision for my kids to be those that don't barely survive whatever the heck's going to come in this next generation. But God has a vision for my children to, to thrive as missionaries, to exist as those that are bringing the gospel to a generation that doesn't even have it. That's an active view of God. I see God clearly, and all of a sudden, my complacency doesn't have an excuse, does it? It's like, man, who am I to just sit back passively when I, why would I, when I have a God who's got so many incredible plans for my life in his mercy and grace? Amen? Why would I? And so that's, that, listen, that's at the root issue of this nation, and that's a double entendre, because I'll say this nation, and I'll say this nation, okay? Um, and I pray it's, it's less true in my own life. I'm, I'm not up here speaking to you as the least complacent individual in the universe. I'm speaking to you as someone whose default is lazy, but whose calling is diligence. And I would just invite all the men in the room to join me as we explore what, what God does have for us. Now, this complacency in the nation of Judah, as we are working through this prophet profile, it leads us to the prophet's task. So, so he's diagnosing the nation. He's like, this is what's going on. And when you peel the onion, you get down to the, the core of what's really going on. He goes, it's the men who are complacent. But as, as, as we look at it, here's now where Zephaniah has a task. His job is not just to be like, here's what's wrong with Judah. Let's pray. That's not his job, you know. His job is actually to proclaim what God's going to do about it. The fact that God isn't passive, but he's active. And in, and in Judah's history, here is what he tells Zephaniah to tell the people. Here's what he proclaims. And this is like, by now, I'd probably be lifting the message more to like hopeful, happiness, care bears. Um, but we're not, we're not going there yet, okay? Um, in fact, this is, this is, okay, this is why it's good that we open up the Bible and let it talk to us. We don't just kind of like keep it over here and like, oh, I like this part, right? Like we can kind of, we have like, it's like valves in our life where we like close off to some things. We're like, oh, oh I'll open up that one, right? He works all things together for good. I'll, I'd love that, all right? Like this is why it's good for us as a community to be people who open up our lives to the whole counsel of God's word and not just settle for inspirational happy TED Talks on Sunday morning, okay? That wasn't a dig. That was just... It was a little bit of a dig, okay? Um, the heart here is that, man, we don't want to miss out on what God has to say. And there are some hard truths that our lives need. And, and truths, as Zephaniah reveals to us, that are just truths of even God's love. And it, as it pertains specifically to his judgment. And so that's what, that's what Zephaniah is going to, to get into here. Um, his task in this book is to proclaim the dreadful, definite, and deserved day of the Lord that is coming upon Judah and every person slash nation in history. This is Zephaniah's noble task, to proclaim a day. Uh, in fact, if you have some fun and read through chapter 1, you're going to notice the word day used 14 times. 14 times. Zephaniah is alluding to, he's pointing to this coming day. Day, and it's not like a day 
that's exciting. It's not like a day we're looking forward to. It's a dreadful day. Uh, he, he says there in verse 14, he says, The great day of the Lord is near. That's what he says to Israel. There's a day coming. It is near and it hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. That is a day of not celebration, but notice this, it's a day of wrath that's coming. A day of trouble and distress. A day of devastation and desolation. A day of darkness and gloominess. A day of cloud and thick garden, uh, darkness. Verse 16, a day of trumpet and alarm against the fortified cities and against the high towers. Verse 17, I will bring, this is where it gets heavy, I will bring distress upon men and they shall walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust and their flesh like refuse. It's like, oh, that's in the Bible, right? <laughs> Yeah, th this, is, this is what God has to say a lot of the time to especially his people, but, but wicked humans, those that are sinful, those that have done evil. There is this day that he's pointing to where judgment is coming. Now, uh, to help us out a little bit, the day of the Lord, that's the phrase that he uses. We saw it there used over and over again. Right now we're like, okay, when's the day? Am I good? Like, what, is it today? <laughs> All right, like, what is, what is this day that uh, Zephaniah, and if you remember Joel, when we were studying Joel, Joel alludes to it as well. Uh, the day of the Lord is a term in scripture that's used to describe a moment or a period in time when God acts significantly in righteous judgment against evil. That's what we're talking about here. This is what... What Zephaniah is proclaiming, a day, the day, the day of the Lord. Now, the first time this expression is used, it's used at the Red Sea. When Egypt, uh, when Israel is delivered through the parting, Prince of Egypt, let's go, you know what I'm talking about? When, when Egypt is, is chasing Israel, and Israel is delivered through the Red Sea, and then the sea swallows up the Egyptians. That was the day of the Lord. It was a, a significant point in history when God acted in righteous judgment against evil in his righteous judgment. And, and this is what we're alluding to in this point here. Uh, the fact that this judgment that God brings, it's not something he brings undeservedly. It's not like God, you know, lost his temper. The scripture doesn't describe God that way. The scripture describes God as slow to anger. So it's not like people sit and God's like, and he overreacts with this like crazy judgment. You're talking about someone who has the counsel of eternity in his wisdom. To, to decide on when and how he will act, and here's the point, against evil. And we've talked about this a few times, uh, sort of the, the wrestle that we face, that it's how, much hard, how hard it is to grapple with God judging evil when it's my evil, right? Like, I'm okay with you judging their evil. Get them, God. All right? Like those kinds of people, those kinds of criminals, whatever, whatever like in your mind, and the reason why we don't see ourselves, uh, apart from Jesus, in our own sin, because we're all sinful before God, apart from Jesus, the reason why we don't see ourselves is deserving of that kind of a consequence, like judgment, is because we have been culturally conditioned to have a very small view of what sin is and what it produces. Scripture says sin is so severe that it's destroyed the created order. Sin is so severe, Scripture says that, um, we can never fathom this, right? Because uh, Scripture says that sin, the idea is that we, it's, it's an offense against a holy God. Like, I can, I can try to wrap my mind around what it means to sin against you as another person. None of us can fully articulate what it means to sin against the God who created us, who's holy. And that, that's, that's what's at the root of God's judgment, is that truth. That it's sin against a holy God. So here's God's judgment. Here's God's justice coming upon evil. And, and I, and I want to say, like, as hard as that is to swallow, because we all want mercy instead of judgment, um, we worship the God of Scripture because he's a God of justice. Now, now we're the problem with that. But it's not a problem with God. It's all that we want him to be. We want God to be who he is, which is a God who sees all evil and will not let it go unchecked. Like those things that, that don't make it in, the, in the court, a court of law, that person that gets away with it, that person that sinned against you, 
like we have a God of justice. We, we have a God that like that laughs at the Supreme Court. Do you know what I'm saying? Like not like you get what I'm saying, right? Like he's he by the way, um, he's gotten the vote of the electoral vote of the Father, and he's the ultimate okay Supreme Court. He is the real court. He is the real judge. We want him to be just. The issue is when we we stand before him in and of ourselves. Um, scripture over and over again, again, is using this concept of the day of the Lord. Now, here in Zephaniah, about God's just judgment on Israel, now God is, he's not overreacting. He's bringing his, his, his judgment on the nation. And he uses this phrase, Zephaniah uses this horrible, dreadful day that's, that the nation deserves. And, and it's meant to communicate uh, two things. It, it exists to proclaim the fact that Babylon's about to come and, like, just, like, wreck house in Judah, like it's, it's going to be bad for them, and they, they do, that happens, because when God says it's going to happen, it happens, but it's also there to be a shadow of another day, and that's what's interesting about Zephaniah, you have like judgment that's for Israel, but then God starts including the other nations, they're like, wait, what, do you say our name? Like, we're in that too? And, and then it, it goes even further to where you get to chapter 3, and this is how God ends the book in, in talking about his judgment. He points to a day that he says, wait for, wait for me, until the day that I rise up for plunder, my determination is to gather the nations, the nations, all of them, to my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. Wow, this coming dreadful day of the Lord that scripture says here in Zephaniah is not just coming upon Israel in 600 BC, but that's a shadow of a day where God is going to judge evil once and for all. You can read about it in Revelation chapter 20, where both the small and the great, the living and the dead, they are going to be brought before the great white throne of God and God will judge each one according to his works. Now, I want you to notice something. This is really important. We're, we're, we're developing more theology here, understanding who God is. I'll make sure you don't leave without knowing that he loves you. Don't worry, okay? But we also need to develop a Christology of who Jesus is. Because a lot of times I think what we do is we're like, oh, God, oh, this is, oh, classic Old Testament sermon today. Right? Like, when do you get to Jesus? You know, like... He's so New Testament, you know? Like, I like the New Testament vibe. And I want you to know that, um, by the way, Jesus is God. Okay? He's the God of the Old Testament. Okay? He's the God speaking in a mysterious way through Zephaniah. And I want you to know that the New Testament doesn't pander so much to our, like, fluffy pillow idea of God. Even in the book of Acts, like you have the, first, the birth of the church. Everyone's like, I want to go back to the early church. You know, in Acts, it was like so great. It's like, yeah, you, that one time when those two people were lying about their tithe and God killed them. You want some of that? It's like, no. So like we create this, uh, we create this view of God. That he's like this way in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, he's like, he's a lot more. Like we forget that the central point of the New Testament is the wrath and the justice of God being poured out upon Jesus. That, that's the focus of the New Testament, God's judgment on his son. So we don't have like this schizophrenic God issue here where God's not sure what, he, what he's like. In fact, Je so Christology, who is Jesus? Now, I want you to notice this. Acts 17 tells us this. This, is, this was, uh, we're getting to the idea of judgment, all right? This was uh, uh, Acts 10. This is Paul. It says, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God, speaking of Jesus, to be the judge of the living and the dead. Isn't that interesting? Like, we haven't just been commissioned to preach Jesus the Savior. Like, Jesus, he, he is the Savior. Let's preach that. But, but Jesus is not just the Savior. He's the judge. Do we know Jesus that way? He's the judge of the living and the dead. Acts 17 says, because he has appointed a day. You see that phrase? What is that? The day of the Lord. He's appointed a day on which he will judge the world, key phrase here, in righteousness. There's not one flaw of ill will, sin, unfairness in God's judgment. He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he gave assurance of this by raising him from the dead. God's done that with one person. That's Jesus, okay? 
And so Jesus, he is the one that's sitting on that judgment seat. You get this picture in Revelation of him. On one one hand, he's the lion. On the other hand, he's the lamb, right? Those two sides of the same face. Um, This is the message that Zephaniah has to communicate to us. Uh, Each week, I usually start with giving our major message, but... um, uh, let's end with it today. Write this down. The major message of Zephaniah. Here's, here's what Zephaniah communicates to us. Uh, this is what I have for you on our first Advent Sunday. All right, but it's good. It's like broccoli. It's good for you to eat, right? This is good food. It's like, ow, oh, okay, but it's true. The righteous nature, this is what Zephaniah teaches us about, the righteous nature of God's appointed judgment. The righteous nature of God's appointed judgment. That's everything we just explored. Now, this would be a really depressing place to close in prayer. Okay? It would also be a irresponsible place to close in prayer. Um, it's a perfect place to shed light on who Jesus is. For us to, to, now that we get the full grasp of who God is in his righteous judgment, knowing that one day every single person who's ever lived, including you, including me, will stand before God. Knowing that, and that righteous judgment awaits me on an appointed day, knowing that, Zephaniah gives us some advice, okay? In fact, when you, when you read through the book, I encourage you to do that this week. Here's what you're going to find Zephaniah encouraging the people to do. Write these three things down. Here's what Zephaniah says to do in light of this truth. He says, number one, be silent before the Lord. Number two, be saved by the Lord. And number three, be shameless in the Lord. This is uh, Zephaniah's counsel. I'm thankful that Zephaniah has given us more than just pronouncements. He's, he's proclaimed the truth of who God is as a righteous judge. And he has made it clear for us to understand that this God of righteousness and, and, and justice is going to judge the whole world fairly through the person who he's, he's appointed, Jesus, who's Savior, but he's also judge. In light of that truth, this is where the good news calls us to respond. The first thing that we see Zephaniah saying is, in light of this, you need to be silent before the Lord. This is where it starts. In fact, um, that's what he says in verse 7. He says, be silent in the presence of the Lord God. The idea there about being silent before the Lord is, um, it's like when I catch my kids in their sin, and they, they're so guilty that they have nothing to say. But just like where, like Penny's the one, oh my gosh, last night, oh my goodness. Notice Brittany's not here at church today. Uh, pray for her. Um, pray for Penny that she, Brittany doesn't kill her. Um, last night, it's midnight. It's midnight. I'm at the table studying last night. Penny's having a hard time getting into bed. And it's been like 30 minutes. She's been in there. Brittany's asleep. And I'm like, okay, it's good. The house is quiet. Not even a mouse. Very Christmassy. Nope. Not Christmassy. Um, I look up out the window, and I notice that Judah's room, where Evie and Judah are sleeping, their slider, the doors open to the back patio at midnight. And I'm like, I'm about to kill someone. This is fun. So... An intruder, by the way, not my kids. So I go outside, and I'm, it's pitch black in my, in my backyard. Penny, two years old, is in the back patio hiding under a table at midnight in my backyard. And she has all of Judah's ornaments from his little Christmas tree. She's been wanting to get them all, all week long, and Judah won't let her have them. And, so I, and they're just smashed everywhere. Um, and I just come out there and she's just like a raccoon, like in the head, like, (laughs) there's just glass everywhere. Before you call whoever you call to report me, um, (laughs) there's nothing we could do. I mean, she unlocked the door from the, she like, she made an escape. She was like a a stray cat. She was just like, like went out there, but, but. There, you know, you've all been there, right, as a parent, if you are a parent, you know the, the difference between, because a lot of times you get kind of the back talk and the excuse, well, mom, he and she, and no, and, and, and you're just like, 
stop talking, okay? <laughs> right? You've been there? Just, and, and, and there's this sense in which the difference between, like, you're trying to justify yourself, do you know what I mean? And you're more like Penny, a raccoon under a table at night. And you're just, you're, you're like, what can you say? And so I want you to think about that, to think about that's what Zephaniah is saying. We need to be like before this God of justice. Because our tendency is to just justify away. Well, God, well, God, this is why, or, or God, God, let me make this excuse, or God, I would, okay, and, and Zephaniah says, just be silent. Just be honest. That's the first step, is be honest with yourself. Be honest about your sin. Be honest about your own need for a Savior. By the way, that's what John Edwards said is the only prerequisite to salvation. The only thing the only thing that you need to be saved is need. Is need. And honesty with who you are. So, so Zephaniah says, first, be silent before the Lord. Stop trying to justify yourself. First John 1 says that if we say that there is no sin in us, we lie and the truth isn't in us. Don't do that. Be real with God. The second thing he says to do is, now that you've been silent before the Lord, Stop trying to, not, not excusing and justifying your sin. Now he says, be saved by the Lord. Now, what a great encouragement, right? Um, it's, it's a command that's, that's also in the New Testament. Uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, Peter's preaching and he says, be saved from this perverse generation. Like, what a great command. <laughs> hey, judgment's coming. Be saved. Certain judgment, deserved judgment. The day of the Lord is coming, so be saved. Well, that begs the question, doesn't it? How can I, as a guilty sinner, be saved from the judgment that my sins deserve? How can I actually do that? How can I actually be saved? It's in Zephaniah chapter 1 where Zephaniah says, well, first and foremost, you need to know that it's nothing in and of yourself that can do it. He says, in that day, I love that he says this in chapter 1 verse 18, he says, neither silver nor gold will be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath. This is the first thing Zephaniah says. He goes, okay, you know you're facing judgment. You know you need salvation. The next thing you need to know is that you cannot personally bail yourself out of the bind you find yourself in. Which is typically how most of us get out of our own problems, right? You ever had to, like, bail yourself out? Like, you reach in your pocket, you're like, okay, I got this. All right, I didn't mean to hit you. All right, please don't fall. You know, I don't know if it's like that. I'm not encouraging that, by the way. But, like, you, you ba- like I'm, I'm stuck. We've all been there. Or maybe you got to call someone. Hey, I'm in a bind. I, I, need to, I need to get bailed out. Now, that doesn't happen. That can't happen with the judgment that we're facing with God. To, to reach deep within yourself, to find what you need, the resources to bail yourself out. Neither silver nor gold. Now, here's the way, though, that you can be saved. Ready? It's if God bails you out. If God provides the means and the resources to save you, and this is, of course what we see in the life and in the ministry and the death of Jesus Christ. Jesus is called our redemption. He is the one who buys us out of the situation that we're in. And it's interesting that Zephaniah says that silver or gold can't do it because it's 1 Peter 1.18 that says that we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, same idea, but with the precious blood of Christ. The blood of Jesus that's shed for our redemption, for us to be saved. That's the hope of our salvation, that God bails me out through the death of his son, providing his son Jesus to die in my place, absorbing in himself not just my sin, but to be punished in my place. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus took upon himself all of the wrath and judgment that you and I deserve. You see, Jesus, he went to the cross on that day so that you wouldn't have to be judged on the day. It's been said that God treated Jesus on the cross as though he were me, so that God could treat me as though I were Jesus. 
the great exchange, the great switcheroo. Jesus takes my sin. I receive his righteousness. It's redemption. And this is what Zephaniah points to in describing this judgment that's to come. He tells the people in verse 1 of chapter 2, gather yourselves together. Gather yourselves together. And he says, before the decree is issued, before the day of judgment comes, or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger, it's coming. But before it does, it's almost like uh, 2 Corinthians says, today's the day of salvation. The, the day of judgment is coming. But while there's still time, he says, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, yeah, judgment's coming, but here's the good news. For every person that's under the sound of my voice, and you have not been saved from your sin, here's the good news. Today's the day of salvation. There's a day of judgment coming, but thank God that God is merciful and gracious. He's not lazy. He's long-suffering, and his desire is for you to be saved. So he has withheld that judgment. He, he is, in his patience, reserving it, and today he's giving you the opportunity to be saved, to seek the Lord. And, and notice the idea there, so that you might be hidden in him. I mean, that's the, that's the hope. It's like when the judgment comes, uh, when, when, uh, when it hits the fan, when it does, how am I going to be able to survive the judgment that's to come? Uh, it, it's, it's also echoed, this idea, talk about who Jesus really is. Uh, another book that we all study all the time, Revelation. You know that book? Revelation 6.15 talks about a day where the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, every free man, it says they hid themselves. This is a day coming. They're going to hide themselves in the caves and the rocks of the mountains. Um, and they're going to say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne. Notice this, Savior Jesus, from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great, now here's the question, for the great day of his wrath has come. It hasn't come yet, it will come. And who is able to stand? I mean, um, you, you have two, you and I, we have two options. Every human has two options in that day. Try to hide yourself like Penny in the backyard or be saved. I mean, we'd be foolish, right? Not to come to Jesus for the security that he provides. Uh, and I love this concept because Colossians says this about a Christian. Colossians says that you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're hidden in Christ. A lot of us, we have been um, hiding ourselves. We've been hiding our sin. We, we, we've been doing everything we can to, to conceal our brokenness. And, and what we're doing is we're trying to be a savior that only Jesus can be. Why are you hiding? Isn't that what God said to Adam and Eve? What are you doing? Rather than try to hide yourself, hide yourself in Christ. Let Christ conceal you. Come to him. Be saved through what he has done. And then I'll invite the band up to close us out here with this last idea of being shameless in the Lord. We're silent before him knowing that our sins have brought us to where we deserve the judgment that's to come, not excusing it. We're saved. We're saved by coming to Jesus and trusting in him and him alone to be our redemption. Not hiding ourselves, but, but letting our lives be hidden in Christ. Who can stand before this day of his wrath? Well, those who are in Christ. And now as those who are in Jesus, we get to rejoice in the fact that this God of judgment, and here's that consistent point, this God of judgment, he's only God is perfectly both just and merciful. Only God. You see this converge on the cross, don't you? Where just the mercy, the love, the justice, and the wrath of God are all um, central in one moment. And it's only God that can do this perfectly. Only God who can be faithful to judge sin. And this is Israel. Yet what's so amazing about this God is he's always inviting us to be forgiven. He's always inviting us to be loved. 
And that's the vision that he gives at the end of this book. He gives a vision at the end of a time following this judgment that's to come. Where he says, for then, this is indicative of us as the church today, but also of a future a future age. For then I will restore the peoples to a pure language. That's like, looks a lot like Pentecost there. That they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Notice this. For in that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. Now, it's interesting because Zephaniah points out, points out two flaws with shame. Earlier in chapter 2, he, he talks about um, sinful men who are living their lives in rebellion without any shame. That's like a bad kind of shameless. It's like, bro, you're shameless, and it's showing, okay? It, it's a kind of shameless that's not repentant, that's not convicted. Like, that, that is not a kind of shame, uh, or that's not kind of life that we want to live with our hearts hardened. But, but then Zebaniah talks about another kind of danger with shame, where you're living in it. And maybe, again, it's your view of God. You have this view of God that he exists to just shame you for what you've done. Over and over and over again. No wonder you're complacent. When has shame ever driven someone to pursue God more? When has shame ever driven someone to, to, to try again? To have a fresh start? No, shame can't do that. But grace can the love of God can. And that's where Zephaniah ends this book with a call to God's people to sing and rejoice. I love that. Be glad and rejoice. Okay? Rejoicing can't coexist in the same heart of, of shame, can it? It's the exact opposite. And the reason why is because God has taken away your judgments. He's put them upon his son, Jesus. He's cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall see disaster no more. And then look at this beautiful ver voice, uh, verse here. The Lord your God is in your midst. Here's the remedy to shame. The mighty one will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This is the remedy to shame knowing that you have a God who loves you. And he's not there to shame you. He's there to rejoice over you. What an incredible picture of God and his love for us. Like we, we know that we're supposed to sing to God. But imagine this, God is singing over you. Not worshiping you, but rejoicing in you. The same way that you rejoice in a child. The same way that you're filled with delight at, at a son or daughter that pleases your heart because they belong to you. That's who God is towards you and I. He rejoices over us. I love that it says this. He quiets us. It's like shame is talking, talking, talking. God's like, shh. Be silent now, not in guilt, but be silent in my love. Don't allow the, the thoughts and the words of shame to be louder than me singing over you in love. There is this truth that we discover in this book about God's righteous judgment, but there is also these incredible promises of this God of judgment also being a God of mercy and grace displayed most clearly through his son Jesus who he sent to the cross. Uh, next week, for the sake of time, we're going to gather together around the Lord's table uh, to commemorate that uh, through that meal. But for now, I want to invite you to stand with me as we dismiss. And I just want to pray over us, pray over our church, pray over your week pray that these truths are downloaded deep in your soul as you leave today. I want to also say we're going to have some prayer counselors here at the front of the altar after. Maybe, maybe today you've realized that your trust has not been in Jesus. or you, You're like, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know when that day comes. If I'm going to stand hidden in Christ or try to hide myself. You know, Jesus didn't die for you to have some half-hearted, unsure idea about that. He died for you to know whoever believes in his heart and confesses with his mouth the Lord Jesus will be saved. And so if that's you, come up afterwards. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to, to lead you to connect with God in that way. Ultimately, my heart is that we would go out as those who have, again, that right view of God. 
We, we don't just see him in parts. We don't just close our eyes and kind of cut our lives off to, to certain parts of him and accept others, but we know that our lives are all the better when we fully open ourselves up to this God and who only is both perfectly just and amazingly gracious. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.